Hi, and welcome to Drawing Inspiration. I am your host, Mike Hendley. I created this podcast as a way to expand my knowledge when I discovered the artist in me in my 40s. I look beyond the easels, the sketchbooks, and the iPads to discover what it means to be an artist. Join me as I speak to other creatives about their journey, as well as reflecting on my own work and experiences. Episode 71, Channeling the Old Masters in the Land of Enchantment with Eric Romero. Hi everyone, welcome back. I took a break with the uh, the last episode a couple of weeks ago, and uh, every so often we just need to do that. I'm so glad to be back with a brand new episode. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview, and uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. I'm just going to cover a few quick things, and then we'll jump right into that interview. As many of you know, I do have a Patreon that supports uh, the podcast, as well as me as an artist. You can find a link to that in the show notes. But I wanted to give a special shout out to some new Patreon members. So we have Amanda, Sarah, Angela, and Glendon. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast, as well as my other Patreon supporters. Thank you so much. So I wanted to share something exciting that has happened recently. I mentioned this in my Instagram and Twitter as well. But uh, I am now an official artist ambassador for Pentel Canada. Uh, Pentel is a company that started about 70 years ago in Japan, but they have, I guess, instances of the company in each country around the world, or many of the countries around the world. So Pentel Canada reached out to me a couple of, of months ago and asked if I wanted to be an artist ambassador for them. And of course, I just jumped at the opportunity. For me, it just made sense. I love uh, the Pentel mechanical pencils as my uh, my main drawing pencil. With uh, I use the 0.3 millimeter with the 2B lead, but I also use the Graph Gear 300 and uh, the um, the Pentel Orens, which is their um, their black mechanical pencil, kind of a matte black. And I've also used the um, their water brushes. So. It just made sense. I was using the products anyways, and uh, I'm so honored to have been chosen as an artist ambassador and to share a page with other wonderful artists that are also serving in that role is just incredible. So for me, this was kind of a bucket list item. Being able to uh, to have a, a collaborative relationship with a manufacturer, I think, is just fantastic. So I look forward to what this will bring, and I will continue doing more pencil work and doing live draws. There is no kind of requirement on my end except just to create. And I will uh, obviously make note of Pentel products as I use them, but it doesn't mean that I won't be exploring as I'll get to a little bit later items like gouache and 3D printing and acrylics and everything else as well. So I'm so excited and I'm so thankful for this opportunity. So, uh, yeah, you can. I'll include a link in the show notes so you can check out the pentel.ca site where it lists all of us and some examples of our work. And I encourage you to check out the other artists there as well. I think this is fantastic for companies to reach out and uh, consider these collaborations. So I'll just go quickly through some of the work I've been doing. So I did another frog, and this was once again uh, from a reference photo from uh, Tropical, <laughs> which is a coal in Australia. So I, uh, I drew this quick little frog, and I'm going to be sending him a print for thanks in allowing me to use one of his photographs. His work is just incredible. So uh, I did that once again with uh, the graph gear, as I mentioned earlier. I also tried gouache and watercolor paper, black watercolor paper, <laughs> for the first time. And uh, no sense in just, you know, <laughs> going slow into it. 
So uh, I haven't, I've used white gouache a little bit in some older kind of watercolor work I did, but not for a whole piece. So being the year of the, the tiger and specifically the water tiger, I decided to create one in gouache because I wanted this wonderful black uh, background. So I found this black watercolor paper. It is from Stonehenge. It's like a 300 GSM paper and it's uh, cold pressed, so it's very textured. And it's been really fun to work with. I've tried black uh, multimedia paper for colored pencil. So the, the thing I really like about this paper is it seems to absorb more light, which which means that when you throw down color, there's much more contrast. And so I really enjoyed working with that. I think I'm going to do a few more pieces with uh, this gouache on the black watercolor paper. Uh, it's, it's incredible. And uh, I don't know what I'll do next. I have a couple of ideas, but stay tuned. <laughs> I will be playing with gouache. And just on the whole paint thing, I am also going to be um, working with some acrylics. So I had to buy some acrylics for some 3D printing thing that I did, and I'll get to that in a second, where I wanted to paint on it. So I bought some acrylics and I decided, you know what, I'm going to try acrylics. So I went and bought uh, a few tubes to give me kind of a decent palette. I bought three canvases. Uh, one is wood, one is primed with white gesso, and one is primed with black gesso. And so I'm going to try acrylics. I've never painted with acrylics before. And I bought a stay wet palette so I can keep the, the paints fairly wet between sessions. And uh, we'll see what happens. So hopefully by the time the next episode comes out, I'll be able to talk about my experience of playing with acrylics. I, I just, I love creating and I love kind of experimenting a little bit. I feel like even playing with acrylics could possibly impact how I draw with pencil. And so all of this just becomes something that I use to create. I am not leaving pencil. A lot of people have asked me, you know, why do you do it? Or would you ever consider stopping, you know, creating with pencil? And for me, pencil's at my core. Being able to render things with simply a, a pencil, whatever it's, if it's a 2B, a 6B, a 2H, whether it's mechanical or wooden, that's the core of what I do, is I just love drawing with pencil. So I want to make sure that I explore everything else because I feel that until I do that, I'm really not giving myself an opportunity to explore the joy that I may derive from from painting with acrylics or working with gouache or oil painting maybe in the future. I don't know. So I want to make sure that I expose myself to all of this and I'm not limiting myself based on the mediums that I've chosen or that are easily accessible. People ask about pencil. The reason I went to pencil first is because they're everywhere and I can take a pencil and a pad and take it anywhere and just draw. And I didn't have to commit to any kind of research and understanding what to what to get and, and you know what paper to use. It wasn't until later that I discovered the differences in the papers and the differences in the pencils. But even a, a simple wooden pencil and a piece of paper gives you enough to create. And so that's why I went to pencil first. And for me, I still have a love affair with pencil. It'll never leave. But I, I do enjoy this opportunity to be able to uh, to create and to explore uh, other mediums. And so one of the things I've chosen to explore is 3D printing. And the reason I went to this is something called lithophanes. So lith lithophane was initially created with porcelain many years ago. And the whole point in this is it... It is a physical representation of a photograph or a piece of art that uses a relief. So you've got different heights of material, thicknesses of material, 
And then when you print it, it, you can see the image, you can feel the image, but when you lift it up to light, because the material is thicker and thinner in certain areas, it blocks the light and renders a basically a black and white version of what you embedded in the image. And so I tried it with a couple of photographs. I feel like if you're doing it with a photograph, you have to make sure to marginalize the background because it ends up competing with the subject of the image. But what I found best is if I take some of my graphite work, so I did it with a couple of monarchs, and I also did it with, with the gecko. When you render those, I think they just look incredible because there's no background, it's just the subject. And so I did one that's kind of rounded uh, that you can just sit on a desk and wrap it around a tea light or whatever the case. And then I did one that was just uh, flat that you could hang in a window. And uh, they're fairly easy to do. There is a site. I'll include the site in the show notes. So if you have access to a 3D printer, you can go to this site, upload an image, and it creates the file that you need to actually render this 3D um, lithophane. And... Uh, so what you'll need is white PLA, which is the filament that is used to create these objects. And it takes some time. It, it took, I think, seven or eight hours to print one of them. But uh, when they come out, it's just so unique. So uh, I love this. I think I'm going to send one to a friend of mine. So I think they're just wonderful to create, to be able to feel the texture. I, I think it's incredible. So um, yeah. And I also printed some uh, palettes for some Altoid cases so I can... Uh, put some paints in an Altoid case and, and take it with me and be able to create with that. So I've been finding little art subjects. There's a there's a site called Thingiverse where you can go through and you can just search for a term and find all these 3D uh, printing plans. And I will include a link to that as well in the show notes. So it's been fun. So the last thing I wanted to mention is that I am now doing live draws. I've committed to doing it every Sunday at 1 Eastern time, 1 p.m. Eastern. And I'm doing it on Instagram for now. And I'm probably going to do another random one during the week because I know people in Australia and New Zealand are challenged with getting up, I think, at 4 a.m. on Sundays to see that. Uh, or I guess it would maybe be 4 a.m. Monday. But either way, I'm going to do another one during the week, kind of a random 7 or 8 Eastern during the week. And I may commit to a specific day, but for now it'll be just a bit random. But I will post in my Instagram stories when they're coming up. So I've done two since the last podcast. I did a, a crow, which was a commission, or I should say a raven. It was a crow, and I, I rendered it as a raven. And I also did a mushroom this past weekend. So uh, that was fun. I'm going to uh, not always use pencil. I think I may actually do mushroom ink the next time that we connect. And I encourage you to come along. You can watch. You can be part of it. You can... Um, take whatever photo I post, I'm at this point posting my own photo references, and you can render it in the same material I'm using, or you can render it with watercolor or pencil or ink or whatever the case. It's just an opportunity for us to sit down for an hour and a half and create together. I play some tunes in the background and we chat. And I, uh, I really enjoyed it. This has been great. There's a lot of people asking questions and afterwards people sharing their work. It's been so much fun. So I hope to to see you in the next live draw, which will be this upcoming Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern. So I think that's it for updates. Let's head into the interview. Working from his studio in New Mexico, also known as the Land of Enchantment, my guest this week is a self-taught artist creating representational art using oil paints. The influence of the old masters is evident in his work with a wonderful play of color, light, and sometimes hidden symbology. He has leveraged his creative abilities to also work in other areas, such as retablos, which are unique to his region of the U.S., 
And yes, he has also created some NFTs. To talk about his creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration podcast, Eric Romero. Eric, how are you? I'm doing great, Mike. Dinosaur Mike, first of his name, master of the pencil, lord of the north. How's it going, man? Thank you so much for that. Now, I'm going to, like, we met on Clubhouse. Everybody knows you as Romero. I think I'm, you know, I'm going to stick with that. I wanted to make that transition from Eric to Romero, but everybody calls you Romero, so we're going to go with that for the rest of the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm stressed. I can't seem to figure out what a computer is or how it works. And I'm ready to paint in February. Ready to paint. Computers, I think, challenge a lot of artists. And the thing that I think you're doing is is you're you're taking it on, you're realizing there there's some areas you need to work on and you'll get to it. But you know, computers, Photoshop, all of that is it's important. Like it, it, I think to be an artist this, these days, you do need to do that. And I think you've run into a few barriers with that, but I know you'll get past them. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you have the confidence in me because I, <laughs> I certainly don't. What people don't tell artists is that you will be doing your own marketing, your own, uh, net, you will be doing everything but painting 80% of it. And that's a sobering fact. And that's something it's been challenging to just make that transition where I was just lucky for about four years and then it all came just ahead but yeah it's it's going good I'm learning a lot and um, I hate it but that's about it <laughs> you know I, th- I think you've got such a, an interesting story and we're going to get into it here so Romero, I always like to uh, talk to artists. I always like to find out kind of where they came from when they got bitten by the the art bug. And I'm wondering for you, was art something that you were interested in as a kid? Growing up as an only child, it was the only thing that I had. This was how I got my emotions out. It was how I communicated. It was um, it was pretty much my entire world, and that was. Wolverine, Ninja Turtles, and then when I found out about sports, it stopped 100%. That was probably eight years old, nine years old. Okay. So from the time I can remember, (laughs) my earliest, I used to take a pencil and I would draw one line, dinosaurs, even the toes, one line. I would never take the pencil off of the paper. And it would take me so long to do these drawings. I just saw them the other day. My daughter is two. And I was like, what? I was asking my mom, do you have any of that stuff? And she showed it to me. And I was like, okay, Uh, this is kind of good. I kind of like it. (laughs) You said eight or nine, and then you got turned on to sports. I think um, a lot of people end up in that. Did you... Did you come back to it at some point? Were you like, was that a hundred percent gone for you? And then you came back to it at some point uh, through schooling, or did it was it until later later on that you uh, came back to art? In high school, I did take an art class. I wasn't interested. It was just an elective. But I got kicked out of high school, so I had to do one semester in a public school. And again, it was like being an only student because you know. <laughs> I didn't know these people and the teacher was a friend of mine so I got to be like a studio assistant so I would draw and draw and draw and 
<clears throat> that's where I need to find her name. Um, I should find her name. She was much better than I was. And that was the first time that I had met someone who had composition and technique that were far surpassed mine. And that's where it got me. The competition really kicked in because I, w I just looked at her drawings and she was using color. I had never used this color. And I was like, okay, <laughs> it's, it's back on. This fire in my stomach is back again. And she came to the studio probably around three or years ago. And I told her, I was like, you're pretty much the reason that I actually found my passion again because of how good she was. She was amazing. She still is. And then, of course, through college, it went away again. Uh, yeah, um, through just partying and having a great college experience, not so much academically, <laughs> but just <laughs> living as deliciously as I possibly could, the art just was, it was out the window. I could tell, looking back at it right now, there was an emotional void that was missing there. And it definitely was my artistic practice. Just not creating put me in a mindset that um, could get you in trouble, <laughs> to say the least. So you were just focused maybe just on consuming whatever it was and not tapping into yourself as a human being? Oh, definitely. Yeah, consuming is a good word excess yeah and i was i was missing that um even now i know i've taken off a month from my practice to do the administrative things and i am on edge i even my my um my physical state for some reason like everything just seems to come to a halt and go poorly and that's why i'm so excited like i'm really really waiting to get back onto that canvas so you can't, you can't live without art at this point. Oh no, it's an impossibility. <laughs> you can ask my wife. Like, it centers me in a way that uh, I don't know. I, I can't compare it to anything because mentally, spiritually, emotionally, I'm all. I'm just even. I'm balanced when I'm painting. But without it, it seems like it's just too chaotic. There, there's, there's no solace. You know, we met on Clubhouse. And I knew you were an artist. I knew you were working full time. And uh, I was I was blown away by your work. And then we did a collaborative drawing. With, I don't know how many of us there were. There was 10 or 15 of us drawing on the same canvas um, digitally. And it was around, you know, we were celebrating, uh, is it Pride, Pride Day? Or uh, it was around Pride that we were doing that. And I think you drew a mask. Yeah, was yeah it was a mask. And, and I was just, I was, I was drawing, I forget what I was drawing, but I was watching yours and it was like, oh my God, this guy's good. <laughs> I was just blown away by that. Just to see it firsthand, we were all working on the same canvas, different layers. And um, that was just incredible. And, and I just, I had to say that because I, I failed to mention it at the beginning, but uh, you know, your knowledge, and we're going to tap into these areas about you know, valuing your work and grants and, and just this artist mindset for somebody who's full-time, I think is valuable for those who are doing it part-time or thinking about leaving their current job uh, for something uh, around a creative industry. So I, I really wanted to get you on at some point to be able to talk this through. So I just, I wanted to say that, but I want to come back to at what point did you decide that 
you wanted to get back into art and then was it I'm going 100% into it or was there a point where you were doing something else and art was on the side and then you transitioned over when was that uh, how did that happen and when was that for you hmm let's see when I first went into painting it had to be 10 years ago maybe I know it's a little bit longer but I'm coming out of the gym and I was really into uh, bodybuilding and very serious about it and I noticed I came out of the gym and there was this little gallery there and I went in for I was angry <laughs> I, it was just that was kind of my mindset was being angry you know you take your pre-workout you still have some adrenaline and for some reason I went into this gallery and the man who was uh, he owned the gallery I started looking at the paintings and I was like, huh, this is this guy's got some talent. And I was really taken by what he was drawing, uh, what he was painting. And he offered classes and I was like, Cla okay, <laughs> this sounds pretty good. I didn't have much money then, so I paid for three classes. I probably went maybe three or four times. And what was important to me is that he, th he taught the theory of art, the why. And he painted a lot of um, Mexican, um, just heritage-inspired art. It's beautiful. And it really gave me that insight as to why I need to paint. And it was because I needed to... I'm not the best speaker. And as a kid, I was very quiet. And as a child, I would use it to really get my emotions out into the page. And I think, you know, going back to that balance that I've found as a full-time artist, it was a way that I could speak, that I could sing. And everyone would get this message that I was trying to put out into the world. And I did it for a little bit. And there, there's a funny story. I, I worked on this painting. And it was a Madonna child, and it was abstracted. And I'm thinking, I never looked at his prices of his paintings. Like, I had no interest in buying any paintings. They were too big. I was too poor. <laughs> so after the class, he's like, one of the things, the selling points was you can have a painting in the gallery for like three weeks. And I was like, okay, cool. And a couple days go by. He calls me up, and he says, your painting sold. And so... I was like, wow, that's crazy. I was like, maybe my mom or, <laughs> or someone. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, this guy, he's like the head of sanitation for the uh, city of Albuquerque or something like that. And he bought it. And I was like, I am going to go buy some food with this, like $60. Like maybe I can get some beer. This is going to be crazy good. And when I get there, he hands me a check. And I, I'm not sure, but it was like $1,300. And I was like, who did you rob? What this this has to be a front. This has to be some kind of weird joke. I was like, and then he told me this is your half. And I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> because to me, art meant that, you know, art was in museums. I, I never thought of people actually making this a full-time job. And when I first got that, I was like, one, I couldn't believe it. I thought, you know, something weird's going on. <laughs> and and two. I took that money and I went out, I bought tons of turquoise. I mean, I had two rings on each finger. I had a giant like metal cross and we went out to like every single bar. I think I'd bought a trumpet too. I spent every single penny plus 
plus what I had in my bank account. And in the morning, I was like, okay, I can live this lifestyle, you know? This suits me perfectly. And it took a while to actually, I didn't have any of the paints, I didn't have anything. It took a while and about in 2013 is when I said, I'm going to go all in on this. Like it's either sink or swim. And this is what I'm, I'm going to do. And it was terrifying. Were you with your wife at the time? I, yeah, I was. She, she's, she's the biggest reason. If she did not have faith in me, um, I would have never done it. I would have just has a, like maybe a side hobby. If that, I don't think I would be, I'd probably still be drawing. I wouldn't be painting. That's for sure. Did you go directly into oil painting or did you stop at watercolor along the way? Like, did you, was it always oil? It was always oil. At the university, I took nothing but art history classes. I didn't take, I took two practical art or fine art. Mm -hmm. Wasn't doing it for me. I quit within two weeks. But I knew that art consisted for me, the paintings I liked were oil and liquid. And, you know, that was used four or five hundred years ago. So I was like, that's for me. And I've tried acrylic maybe once. But it's just something, just like going into my art practice, like I just went in one direction and just never looked back or never thought that there would be other options or branches. Interesting. The, um, that, that's, that's cool that you found it right from the get-go. Did your art change from that first piece to where you are now? Um, I would say my style has changed. I see the way I can paint in my brain so much better than what I'm doing now. And the way I visually want to create paintings has not changed so much. There's been different aspects, but just trying to get better and improving with every painting, I think my style has changed very subtly. But from what I can visualize in my brain, which is still still about 20 years off, from, but it hasn't changed that much. I, I've noticed um, I'm getting better at composition and technique and everything you want to be better at. But it, w- it was always kind of the same. The plan seemed to follow a straight line. Now, when we we talk about art, we talk about style. Well, how would you define your style? I mean, you know, you've got probably an artist statement that you've written a number of times. There's one on your site as well, to some degree. How would you describe your style for maybe somebody who's not familiar with the jargon and the terminology? How would you describe your work? See, the good thing about artist statements is I can take a while. <laughs> <laughs> I can get out the dictionary, synonyms. and if, if I'm just explaining to you, I would say that it's bold colors, which is... It's still crazy that I use such bright colors. I do not see myself as that kind of person, but it just translates on the canvas. It's a lot of um, symbolic images I put throughout the composition. I try to tell a story as much as I possibly can with using um, things that I guess you would have to you would have to look for them. But I would say that it was just a bold kind of mannerist kind of style. I love this work. I, I feel like it's it's so timeless when I when I look at it. Is there are there artists that either present or past that you've been influenced by with regard to your work? There are. Um, when I first started out, my favorite had to be Caravaggio. 
I love the use of light in his paintings. It was it was a little monochromatic. Uh, Gentileschi, um, Durer, I loved his symbology. I, I, you could just read into it for years and years. I think the person that I really wanted to emulate is not so much his earlier work, but his later mannerist style was Michelangelo. Very full of life, very like Hellenistic, like third stage, like larger than life movements, colors. Everyone had, they kind of took me back to uh, the Marvel days where everyone's just muscled and they're all in these fantastical poses. Like you can feel the energy coming out and that's what I was like, okay, I want to paint like that. It's funny because I hear you speak sometimes and you come at it almost like, you know, lowbrow, I'm on this, you know, I'm doing this kind of on the street, doing this kind of work. And then you come out of like with all this knowledge about artists way beyond what I'm capable of even understanding. And it just blows me away. Like you just seem to be so multifaceted when it comes to creativity that uh, I just, you, you get into a groove sometimes when you talk about these artists and these styles. And it really does feel that you're it sounds like you're very comfortable with who you are as an artist and you're comfortable with your style. And for you, it's just, it's just looking forward, not looking back. Is that true? Mm, I'd argue with that. <laughs> um, well, just like any artists, it's, you have that relationship with your painting. It's, it's kind of like just having a kid. You try to do your absolute best. You love it. You have problems that you solve along the way and you try to do the best, but when they're ready to go, there's always that, I could have done more. Like, I, I, I should have done this. Like, it, there's, there's no next time because you'll never see it again. And I, I kind of struggle with that, trying to give my absolute all to these paintings when I know there's an end date. And that's, it causes me to, there's a lot of self-doubt. So... It's it's very frustrating not to want to put your entire being into these paintings, but knowing that <laughs> they're open to criticism and, you know, adoration and everything afterwards, after you're done, I never want, I just kind of want to be like, okay, that was done. Let's start the new baby, you know, let's start, <laughs> Let, let's, let's have another relationship here. Paintings are an output, right? Like it's something you you finish, you put up, you sell, you put up in a gallery, whatever the case. Um, that's that's one output. Is it? Do you get more out of that in finishing a painting, or do you get more out of the just the painting, like painting the painting? Do you get more out of that day to day, the little successes along the way, the finishing the clouds, the finishing the mountain? Um, achieving a, a shadow or a color mix that you find perfect is it what's more important to you like when you talk about eric or romero <laughs> the artist what's more important to you is it finishing a piece or is it just the fact that you can paint every day and that that makes you a better human being it's definitely painting i mean you were you're mentioning clouds and it's just taking me back to this when I think about a painting, I this sounds really weird, and it's one of those artist things that you're like, ah, he might be full of it. But you said that, and there were some clouds I was having just the worst time with. Oh, it was so difficult. And I was listening to a paranormal podcast. But when you said that, it took me back 
exactly to the brush strokes and what the Paranormal Podcast was talking about. And I can see myself. It's kind of like um, time skipped a little bit. And when I actually got those clouds to where I wanted to be, I wasn't proud of the fact that they looked very good into my eyes, but it was just that overcoming all that time, those hours and days and months of battling with these clouds that I could say that I could have that confidence to next time I do a landscape, I'm like, okay, you know, I've exercised my painting muscles. I overcame it. I defeated it. Now let's do it again. Let's have that heartbreak, <laughs> heartbreak one more time. It's definitely the painting. There's nothing else like it. Are there sections of every painting that you do that you latch on to to think it's like the clouds? I nailed this part. I got this figured out. If I have to do, if I have to do a rock with this kind of moss on it, I got to figure it out. If I have to do a skull, or I have to do this tone of skin, or I have to do a belly button, <laughs> like are there areas of a painting that you always latch on to to think I nailed that bit? Like, are you always trying to find success in what you do? at that level versus overall? Oh, definitely. My very first still life, I don't, like, it's it's hard to find any brush strokes on my paintings. That's just the way I, I paint. But there was a bottle, and I'd never painted a still life. I had never painted reflections on a glass surface, and I was dealing with those two aspects. I could have been fine with leaving it the way it was. I have pictures of it. It looks, it looks okay. But for, <laughs> I'm not kidding you, for seven months, I went in on this bottle. Um, probably had four months of painting under my belt, if that. But being that I have no brush strokes, I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to redo this bottle. So I tried to get the turp out. It's not happening. There's too many layers. And I was like, how thick is it? So I put it on its side and I had a quarter inch of oil paint. I had to take it off with an X-Acto blade. And so I'm taking this off and I'm like, I'm ruining this painting. I, I, I say that every single time I start, but I was like, <laughs> I'm ruining this painting. And there was something about me that I could not let it go. Like I was not going to put this to the side. I was going to finish this. And yeah, just a quarter inch of oil, probably four or five hundred layers. That's that's what I'll do. I mean, on Clubhouse, there's been days where I haven't slept for three days working on... <laughs> yes. <laughs> work, working on who knows what I'm working on, but I'll stay up. And thank God my wife is very patient with me and very supportive. But that's just my personality, that I'll go above and beyond until my hands are bleeding I can, <laughs> I can barely move and I'm hallucinating. Do you, I mean, your work's up in galleries. Do you, when you go to these events and people look at your piece, are you thinking, please notice that little section there that I spent <laughs> three quarters of my time on? Do you, do you seek that from people? I'm just, I'm, I've never had my work in a gallery. So I'm wondering if, if that's part of the experience. Having your work in a gallery is funny. Um, for me, all I can see is what, the things I've done wrong or I didn't work hard enough at. And like you said, if you want someone to see it, I did the first time that I was in a group show. I was like, I wonder if someone gets that. I put some kind of Play-Doh reference. I don't know what it was. And 
it, it didn't happen, but when it does happen organically, we don't have to kind of like, oh, notice that little rock how it's pointing at this tree and out there goes that line. It's one of the best, absolute best pain, um, feelings as a painter is when you have the same song as someone else without without ever meeting. And the, it just goes together and it's a just sublime feeling to be like, you got it. You're part of me. I'm part of you. Like we have this um, like connection right off the bat through visual stimulus. Has that been harder with the pandemic? Um, I don't know if it's impacted you where you are and that you are more challenged in connecting with people with, who would buy your work. Yeah, it's been it's been pretty challenging. I've noticed that. Um, I mean, with Instagram, I wouldn't have a career, especially during the pandemic. But uh, when I when we do have openings, I want to be as far away from my painting as I possibly can. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm here to enjoy other people's. Let's look at this. Let's try to keep off the subject of my art. And please, yeah, if you buy it, thank you. I love you. But <laughs> <laughs> it's not about you. Yeah, it it's it's I don't know. It's kind of like going back and seeing an ex. And then been like, what went wrong? Let's have a four-hour conversation about what went wrong and like what were the good times. It's just too painful sometimes. I never really thought about that. That's interesting. What is you know? And I'm looking at, and I'll, you know, I'll include a link as I mentioned in every podcast to everything we spoke about, and I'll include a link to your website and your Instagram and all that. But of everything that's on there, like, what has been your most challenging piece? Um, there is a piece at Lapis Room, it's run by Laura Houghton, and we're having a panel on it. So we have a poet, an academic, a band, and she suggested this. I, I, I never would. <laughs> this, this is one of those things, you know, put me in front of people. It's just, it's not gonna, that's why I have other people that are going to speak about it. But it's an interesting story that when I moved into my house, before I was painting, someone threw over a seven foot canvas from the alley into my house. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And so I wake up and I see this gigantic canvas and it's got the grid work. I mean, it's gessoed. And I, I had, like people knew that I drew and like was kind of messing around with it. So I thought it was one of my friends. So I called them up and I, I tell them, I was like, who did this? And everyone's like, I don't have canvases. Like (laughs) none of my friends are in the art world at all, like far removed from it. And so I'm sitting and looking at it and I'm like, someone just was driving down an alleyway and decided to throw a seven foot by like six foot canvas. (laughs) And so it went to my first studio. I'd never touched it. I'd never made any plans for it. And I didn't know what to do about it. And it was so just huge i was like i have to make this you know amazing piece something that i would take some time and planning and effort and passion into so i started painting on it four years ago and i didn't quite know what i was going to do and then it hit me i was like i kind of want to bring the four cultures like mexican indigenous um Spanish and Caucasian. I want to bring them together in this and I want to bring fine art into New Mexico and so I said I Love the birth of Venus. I'm big into uh, Greek philosophy and mythology and I want 
to have a little bit of creation mythology within this. So naturally I was like, okay, Botticelli's Venus. I love it. I'm going to do a Southwestern version that ties in all these cultural heritage things that we have and make it completely and totally unique to here. So you would see it and you would look at everything that's in there and say, okay, this is mine. That's me. That's, that's the way it's going to be. So I started painting on it and I didn't, I, I don't think I sketched it out. I didn't do anything. I just had this and I started painting on it. I realized that this is seven feet. Like, what is that? Like 42 square feet. <laughs> right. And so it gave me the, the kind of freedom to work on a small scale within a large composition. So th these are like 15 different little paintings that I really love. And it has every single official New Mexico insect, animal, flora, fauna. It has so many things. There's probably like 1,800 individually hand-painted rocks. Wow. So this was like my passion project. And I would finish commissions. I would finish paintings in between it. But it was always kind of staring at me. Always giving me that, hey, let's let's go, come on, paint on me, kind of thing. And yeah, it was it was so challenging because over four years, um, I thought that I was advancing. And so every time that I would advance and come back to it, I'd have to repaint it. Right. This this is the kind of lunacy that I practice every day. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would repaint it and repaint it. And so things were getting painted like four and five times. And I had no time time stamp on it. Like there was no end date because I was just loving painting this. And then uh, at the lapis room, Laura came up and she's like, I want to show it. And I was like, oh, I have to do it now. Like I have to finish it. Like no matter if I think I'm going to be so much better in 10 years, like this is as good as it's going to get. So I put that pressure on. And I noticed that I was done and all my friends came in and they're like, that looks great. It looks great. And then my wife comes into the studio and she's like, that face is messed up. And I was like, what? It's her face. Like she's the epitome of perfection for me. Like that's her body, her face. And I was like, you're just being self-conscious. <laughs> <laughs> and so I go up to it and I'm looking at it and it's at a 45 degree angle because I had to have the canvas on the floor and I wear boots. So I would paint in a way that I'm looking at a 40, maybe a 90 degree angle at it. Okay. So being me, like I don't like to look in my paintings that much. I didn't really see it from an outsider's lens. So I go up to her and I said, it's mathematically perfect. I was like, here's the proportions, look at it. And she's like, no, you're measuring that from where you're painting on it. And I took a picture of it and it looked like she had a stroke. It was perfect. If you got right up next to the canvas and looked up, and so I had to finish that within three days. And it was just a fitting end to that painting. And which painting is that? Uh, Messi Sahe. Okay. It's basically, it's, it's a mixture of bloodlines. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, that would be, uh, how many hours do you think you spent on that? Uh, probably close to 500. Wow. The, uh, the, I have procrastination rocks. If you, if you look by her feet, You'll see that every rock is hand painted individually. 
And that's procrastination. <laughs> People are like, you have attention to detail. No, I was stuck. <laughs> I was stuck on another painting and I went and painted rocks. That's incredible. How many paintings do you work on at once? Um, just for an example, I'm going to be working on seven paintings at once within the next two weeks. I noticed that when you do get stuck, instead of doing that horrible thing I do and just keep on it and have mental breakdowns, it's so much better just to take a breath and work on the other painting. Right. I learned that last year. It was, um, for my mental health, it, it was a little bit better. Do you have separate palettes? Like, how do you manage that from a materials perspective? Have you seen my palette? No. Okay. Um, just imagine a trash can. Okay. You just pour in paint. You would, this would give you anxiety, Mike. <laughs> I'll send you a picture of it. It's just a mountain of paint and globs and uh, turpentine all over the place. I don't know. My br I just, that's my brain's problem. He seems to know what's going on. Okay. <laughs> it's funny because you've mentioned at least a couple times to me that, you know, especially when I talked about, and now I'm exploring acrylics, is that uh, you recommend that I go out and buy like a big, big canvas and put something on it. And I, I, I'm, I know where that comes from now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll, uh, at some point I'll, I'll be brave enough. I was in a, I was in an art store and I was eyeing the large ones and I was like, oh, I just, I can't, it's not ready. When you said that, I was like, I hope it's going to end with him getting a four by four. At least go, go do it tomorrow, man. You're going to see your, your chest is going to be so huge when you buy it and you start working on it. Because when you're working on your smaller projects, you have to be perfect. There's so much forgiveness on a large scale object because you mm. can have you you can get into far more detail, but then if you don't quite get it, you'll be satisfied with it. You'll be like, okay, that's enough. Like you take a couple step backs and it looks better than the little tiny ones. I have it in my head, but I kind of want to play with acrylics a little bit before I can know that I can do it with acrylics because you work in oils, and so you know acrylics dry very quickly. I don't know how quickly because I haven't really used them yet, but oils is something I've, I've thought about, but I'm just not ready for. If we move into kind of talking about what you use and how you use it, as somebody who hasn't worked with oils, how intimidating it is, is it to work with getting the right paint, dealing with, you know, the turpentine and, and dealing with the brushes and keeping them clean? And is that, and, and it also sounds like, you know, you can't just go in like, you know, I do a lot of pencil, colored pencil work, gouache. I can go in and like paint for an hour, draw for an hour, and I'm done. I can just walk away, walk in and out. With oil, it sounds like there's a much more production. Like you've got to agree with yourself and have everybody else understand I'm gone for at least three hours. So can you talk about what it's like moving into oils and what you need to be considerate about? For me, I'm... I would say that oils are much easier, much less cleanup. You, you like things in order. So it might be a little bit different, but here's how I do. I walk into the studio and I sit down, I put out two little things of oils and I put liquid, which is a medium that makes it a little bit uh, silkier and it causes it to dry a little bit faster. So I get my brush, put in my terp, 
wipe it off and that's my day. I mean, that's how I start. And it's, it's easy. And then to clean up, you just wipe that brush off in the turp, stick some mineral oil on it and you're done. That's, it's, it's super easy. Hmm. Everyone thinks of this oil as some monster that they have to conquer, but I'm like, I think it's the easiest. And if you mess up, give it two hours and you can do it again. Yeah. I've, I've heard people say like other oil painters say that they've never, like they just would never try watercolor. Oil painters want control and watercolor is just like getting into a car that has like your wheels might or might not have lug nuts in them. Like you don't know. And you're just hoping that you're going to make it down the road. It, it gives me anxiety just, just thinking about watercolor. But yeah, that's why I respect it so much. Are there uh, a kind of brush that you like to use or a kind of paint? Like we're talking about manufacturers. The brushes I get synthetic and they're usually the cheapest. Um, I, I'm not sure they're silver. I'm not very good. Like we get into cars, I can tell you exactly what I use. But as for brushes... It just kind of has to have that feel. I like a real delicate synthetic brush. I just need everything to be, um, I just don't want any brush strokes and it, it, it leaves just a silky smooth finish on your canvas. So I'm, I usually get the cheapest there is. But as far as paints, as my budget <laughs> for materials has gone up, I do realize that there is a big difference between, I think they call them like uh, the uh, academic. They should just call them like starter paint because you're like academic. Well, yeah, I'm an academic and you get these brushes and they're, I mean, these paints are full of filler. Williamsburg, I've noticed, I love. They're a little bit on the price. They're not the most expensive, but they have, they're true to what they have on the label. You're not going to get something that's like completely transparent or opaque or that's, they're really consistent across all of their products, which I really appreciate. But like 30 to $40 a tube, that gets kind of, ouch. Are you buying many different colors or are you mixing a lot? Uh, like if somebody were to get into it, could you get by? I mean, a lot of people try with the Zorn palette, but if you wanted to expand and get like, 10 colors or something like could you work from that oh yeah um when i started out i've always been super frugal so i just got the primary colors white and black talk about frustration trying to match <laughs> what you need <laughs> so just out of necessity i had to create my own colors and that was frustrating but when i found out you know oh, i'll sell a couple paintings i can afford a little bit more it got to the point where I was like, I, can, I cannot buy this paint if I can't mix it. Just to prove to myself that I really do need to master what I'm doing. Because there are going to be times that, uh, for instance, like on some backgrounds for my blacks, I use a red, a green, and a brown. And that is hard to match. So I needed those skills to match whatever I could and to make. And now I'm a little bit... Purples, I'll buy. Um, some skin tones, I'll kind of stay away from, but it, it all depends. I, I will buy 15, 16 paints now. I think that's probably what my palette is now. And when it comes to brushes, are there certain, um, not manufacturers, but the, the type of brush, do you use um, uh, like a filbert? Like, what, do you have two or three brushes that you rely on? 
Um, yeah, I usually have a liner for detail work. Mm -hmm. I have a filbert, and I have um, what I do. It's kind of to get these blending techniques. Is I'll take a brush, usually synthetic, and I'll let it sit with paint for about four hours. So it gets kind of it gets a little bit of that gunkiness. Then I'll brush it really hard on the um, the turpentine. Then I'll soak it. And so I'm trying to create these poofs. I don't know how else to call it. They just, they're kind of like a, um, a dandelion. Okay. So I get it and I rub it against my jeans, rub it against my um, apron until you have this perfect little dandelion. And that for blending is my jam. Like I've never been able to buy something close to having a really crappy brush that's been <laughs> abused. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, so I tell people never throw out any brushes. Like, give them to me. Like, I, <laughs> it takes too much time to manufacture these things. Right, right. Has there ever been a painting you've walked away from? Like, do, do you do you just? I'm sure you've not thrown anything out, but I'm. Have you gotten to a point where you're like, this isn't working, and you just throw gesso down on top of it and start again? Um, I'm I'm not seeing one. There are canvases that I'll try things on. For instance, uh, my Frida Kahlo painting. That probably had five paintings on it, and that was just for practice. It was uh, mostly abstract to get my mind off of representational. And I created these real weird designs, and they were very bulbous, and they went back into space. And I did that for about four paintings in blue, orange, and I think black. And after that, after they they served their purpose, I just gessoed over it, and that's where Frida came from. Hmm. And for those who don't know, like there may be a lot of artists listening to the podcast who are just, you know, that may be drawing um, or working in watercolor and all that. Can you talk about gesso a little bit? Because as I move into acrylics, I'm learning about gesso, and maybe you can talk about what it is and why you use it. Gesso for me, when I started stretching my canvases, you learn really quickly what not to do. <laughs> so as you know, I just go at everything right away. So I bought the gesso and I was aware that you put this on canvas to kind of seal it and so that the paint would go down on it. I think, what is it, like marble dust or something like that? I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's homework. People find out what <laughs> gesso is. <laughs> So I was buying it and I, was, I wasn't watering it down. And a friend of mine had this technique where he would uh, make it the consistency of like 2% milk. And I was like, that's, that's kind of crazy. But he would do it four times. So you have a circular, then you have uh, horizontal, and then vertical, and then he did it like at a 45 degree angle. And there's four different layers. And this will give you coverage of those little tiny canvas holes it'll make sure that it has a really tight surface and you'll get that drum if you've ever hit a canvas all the painters know that you want that tight really good echo on there and the way I use it now is I do a little bit differently probably like whole milk I like it but also you have to be careful because the paint could soak into that and you can get these little dead spots so like if you're getting into it, I would probably make four or five canvases, um, put the gesso on them, 
and uh, just see which mixture you like the best. There's a lot of sanding involved. It's one of my favorite things to do is stretching gesso and canvases. So even if you bought, like, I, I bought some canvases for the acrylics I want to try, they're pre-gessoed. Um, do you, what are your thoughts on pre-gesso versus applying it yourself? It's quicker. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good for and you. I guess if, and I guess if, when it comes to the texture, if you're not happy with the texture on the pre-gesso, you could always put a bit more gesso. Like, do you sand and then apply gesso again? I would sand it. Um, there's been very few times where I haven't been satisfied with the quality of pre-gesso. Okay. Sanding, taking a, a, a wet cloth, getting all that little dust off. If you have one of those um, air guns, that's nice too. Mm -hmm. But I really, maybe a couple times I've had to do that just because the quality was a little bit poor. I wouldn't suggest it. Okay. So here's a question for you. If, if someone like myself or one of the, you know, the person listening is, is thinking about getting to oil paints, is there something that first time oil painters mess up on? I mean, there's a lot that I'm going to mess up on or, or the first time painter would, but is there something that you need to avoid as a, as a mistake? Is there something you need to be careful about along the process? Your expectations. When you go into an oil painting, not having used that medium, you see these oil paintings and you're thinking David, Jericho. You're thinking all these magnificent, magnificent oil paintings, but you really have to do it for the love of starting something new. What I always suggest to my students is that a skull. Skulls, you can have your own style in them. They always look good and get the good light. Get some good light on it, some good shadows. But just really manage your expectations and um, know that oil takes probably around seven months to get used to. Hmm. It's, it's, it's like going to the gym. If you think that you're going to walk out the first time, some massive biceps, it's, it just doesn't work that way. You have to put in that little bit of pain to get, to get the flow of things. Hmm. You have me interested, but <laughs> I'm not ready yet. <laughs> It was funny because I was thinking of you when I was in the art store, but, you know, uh, stretching your own canvas. And it's like, man, I can't even paint yet. <laughs> I've got to do this a step at a time. But I do want to get to the point of being able to stretch my own canvas, uh, whether it's acrylic or uh, oil. You're going to be making your own stretcher bars. I know it. <laughs> You're going to get, yeah, the yeah, I, I can see it. And they're going to have some kind of little locking mechanism that you, like, patent. I know you're going to do it, man. And... <laughs> That's the best part. When you start something, you put it on the table saw. I've made them a couple times. I'm not really good at making stretcher bars, but it, it's just an amazing feeling to make your mm -hmm. own to make your own canvases, especially if you like I dumpster dive a lot and I'm like, okay, yeah. <laughs> this feels good. Doing my part. When you're doing oil paintings, are you sketching? Like do, do you lay sketches down on top of the gesso with like pencil or something? Do you um do you go lightly with, with, you know, a paint? Like, how do you deal with kind of segmenting those areas? Um, it depends. I know on my commissions for portraiture, I will sketch it out in charcoal, which is pretty messy, but I just don't like, I don't like the, the noise of the pencil on, on the canvas. <laughs> and I'll deal with the mess afterwards. Mm -hmm. And that's just to get the likeness as close because... If you go the wrong way on a commission, it's it's going to be tough to correct it. Mm -hmm. But as for my big ones, I just go at them. 
I'll start doing detail right away. A few times, it, it just depends on the situation. I'm not a big fan of planning out paintings. I noticed that for myself, it tends to be set in concrete when I sketch it down. And I've noticed that, I've looked at some of my sketchbooks where I have done it and they turn out exactly like the paintings, but I like to really have them in my mind and have them mature over four or five months, two years. I really like to just see where things goes. Sketching for me, plus it's, it's planning. <laughs> it, it, it seems like it's something I don't wanna mess with and do the grid and it makes me nervous. And, and do you work with digital? I mean, you've got an iPad. Are you doing work in there as well, or are you? Uh, is that more something you've dabbled with? I use my iPad for a hammer sometimes. <laughs> and, you know, if I have any <laughs> woodworking, right. it seems to be pretty good. Um, the iPad has been game changer. When I do, uh, what I use, I used it on one painting. It was of the self-portrait. And it was nice to play around with colors because I'd never used a pink or like a vibrant blue. And I was like, I wonder how that would work. So pre-iPad, that would be, I put the pink down and I put the blue down and it would, it would either bother me and I would take it down or I would just say, yeah, that, that works. And most often than not, it's the first situation where <laughs> I'm stuck. So being able to see just the different colors that are possible and especially take a picture of the painting, adjust it a little bit. I'm like, okay, I'm confident that I can make these changes or these additions to the painting. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I think a lot of artists would do that. I did that with Inktober, which is much, much simpler than, than the work that you're doing. But the ability to take, take a photo of your work and then take it, you know, an hour into it with some digital tools to see how it's going to look in a certain way, whether it's a a composition bit or whether it's a, a paint or a, a, you know whatever the case a color um i do agree that there's uh there's a huge value in that and you've dabbled like through the um with your ipad you've dabbled in nfts i i don't talk about nfts much on this podcast but what's your what, what's your feeling on that um the nfts when i heard about it it was such a, a beautiful kind of uh, I, I forget, like, there, there's this fairylands where everyone was like, you know what? It's decentralized. There's no galleries. This is gorgeous. And it's, it's everyone is getting a piece of the pie. And then I started to get into it. And it just, when I was on the iPad creating something, I, there was something lacking for me. Because I didn't quite know about, like, the... Um, environmental issues with it. I didn't know about people like corporations that were making 10,000 of something and marketing it and became a commodity really. Mm -hmm. And it just started to kind of change my mind about it. But then I also was like, if I'm focusing on these negatives, I'm ignoring so many more positives. So now I'll go on OpenSea and I'll look of, of just kind of browse and I see some amazing digital artworks that are one of one and I'm like okay this this is where I kind of see it going for right now I'm not sure I'm still making digital art and it's more 
definitely it's skulls <laughs> <laughs> i love skulls like that's that's my free time right there the the five minutes of free time i have a day i just go up there and draw some skulls with you know bugs crawling out or some kind of i'm i'm, I'm still up in the air about nfts yeah i mean it's we've both dabbled in the space a little bit i, I agree when it comes to fine art uh it's been lacking. I haven't been on OpenSea in the last month to see what's there. But, I, you know, when I poked around, it's like, uh, you know, I'm not a trained artist, but a lot of it's just not good art. <laughs> not good art. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to, I don't know. I, I understand the, you know, people treating them as collectibles and being able to say you have a, a board ape or whatever the case. But, um, yeah, it doesn't make me. And I think about the environmental stuff as you do, but... I get a lot more satisfaction of, you know, spending an hour sketching a tree in pencil than I do thinking about how do I create an image that works for somebody's profile picture. I just, I can't connect it right now. Maybe it, because I feel like that's what it's about now is you have to create something that's maybe square so people can put it up as their profile picture on Twitter or Instagram or wherever the case, right? So that's a thing I think got me a little bit because when you have a commission, Say, for instance, Mike, you wanted to hire me to make you a cartoon skull, Mike. So I'd be like, okay, I know your personality. I know what kind of art you like. It is a commercial endeavor, but you're still putting heart and soul with it. But with my NFTs, I, I came to the conclusion, I was like, who am I marketing this for? It, it feels, it, w it was more on myself that I wasn't being true to my art because I was so caught up in the feeling of, I need to make the sell. And I think that was kind of, it, w it was scratching. <laughs> it was scratching at me like on the neck and I just couldn't, I couldn't seem to reconcile it. So the stuff I've been making lately, just for myself, I'm just, I think I was looking at it for the wrong reasons when I started up. Yeah, it does feel like the first thing you need to think about when you create your first NFT is how can I make it so it can sell, which isn't, you know, any of the other art I've tried, I never go into it that way. It's like, I, I want to draw this animal. <laughs> and yeah. I want to see if I can render it. It's not, I need to make, you know, I need, I hope I can sell this for, you know, two ETH, right? <laughs> but that's what you're thinking about. As as I started my NFTs, it's like, geez, I wonder, I wonder how much, like, should I, should, you know, is this like a 0 0.02 ETH? piece or can i go to like half an eth like that's the thinking and i i felt like it was poisoning my creative experience i, I it'll get somewhere it'll yeah it's, i mean selling changes things too so it's it's one of those things where i don't know i'm not worried about if if it happens i'm giving it nine months but i'm not really sure what i expect i'm just going to create some weird wolverine skull like channel my childhood things mm -hmm. but it was it was just so strange hearing about it because you sell prints people get to get prints they put it up in their house and it's tangible but to sell a digital image that was two or three times the print <laughs> it, it confused me thoroughly so we're talking about pricing and that's one big thing i wanted to get into because when i've heard you speak to other artists on clubhouse you really call out the people that are doing amazing work and you really push these people forward. You lift them up and then you tell them you're not charging enough. <laughs> yeah. And 
I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit because I've no, I've not heard someone as vocal as you around that, and I I do think we need to talk about people underpricing or undervaluing. They're different, but undervaluing your work maybe leads to underpricing your work. But maybe if you can, can you talk to that a little bit? So there there is a couple things to keep in mind. When I tell people on Clubhouse that their their prices are too low, it's because I, I genuinely mean it. I'm not doing it to raise the floor price of every other artist. I mean, like uh, Toledo, I couldn't believe her. I hope she listens because <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking 10 times more than when she was selling. And uh, it's, it's one of those things where when you start out as an artist, you cannot command the prices that are going in galleries. It just, it's not a good business model because one, people are gonna think you're over you're way overpriced because you do not have a name and they can't attach that name to your artwork. It doesn't matter how amazingly good you are, you have to start a little bit below market value. And 7% bump if you're consistently selling is a good um, way to increase your artwork every year. So sell you, you sell seven pieces, bump it up by 7% next time. and. It's kind of weird. I, I noticed this on Clubhouse and within my art communities. Uh, we are working artists, <laughs> full-time artists, and no one wants you to talk about pricing. It's like a bad thing. They're like, oh, mm -hmm. well, then he's a commercial. He only does it for the money. I'm like, I'm doing this so I can paint more. It's actually very selfish <laughs> in that way, but I am trying to support my family and myself so I can do what I love. And you have to have the value for your work and people must, they have to understand that when you're buying a painting, you're not buying only the talents and the aesthetic quality in it. You are buying everything that you've done up to that point. Like you are buying personality, you're buying emotions. And to put a $200 price tag on it for something that's, you know, 40 inches by 30 inches, that's, that's insulting to the artwork especially if it's objectively good. So when I see someone doing that, I'm like, change it, because I will buy all your stuff right now <laughs> and then change it tomorrow. And yeah, it's, I think, I think it become, it, it's a lack of confidence and I really do believe in art community so we can get together and we can say, yeah, your artwork's worth it, you're worth it, and you wouldn't be selling cars for $200, you know? Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I've heard you talk to Toledo about that. You know what? We're going to include a link to her Instagram profile in the show notes. I do agree. Like even when I was pricing my work in my originals and my prints, I was I heard your voice in my head because I think you know it's it's okay to feel that maybe you could do better in some of the work that you're doing, either in parts of the work that you're doing or the piece overall. But you have to attribute value to what you've done. Like there's no one else in the world really, that could create what you what you create. What you create, what I create, we need to value that in a way that makes it something, as you say, the ability for us to create the next piece and the next piece. And if, you, if you're selling it at a loss, what, what's, what's, what are you doing? You won't be doing it full-time. <laughs> like with Sarah, Sarah Colleague. She didn't have any work for sale. She had inventory, but she didn't let people know that it was for sale. And she put it on a story and sold like four or five pieces 
And I was like, that's, you know, you have work, you price it accordingly, and you make sure that people know that they can buy it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the formula. <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll drop a link to Sarah's work because she does amazing work as well. Um, and I know you two talk a lot. And uh, so we'll, we'll drop a link to her profile as well on Instagram. But yeah, it, it's 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 really easy to sell your work. Like it's really easy to to expose it, whether it's Instagram, Twitter. In in this kind of economy that we have, it's not hard to create that transaction. It's hard to price it. Do you have any kind of thought about maybe not yourself, but others? If you're creating a piece that's let's say four foot by four foot, and you're a decent artist, like do you think about it? per square inch like how, how do you think about that if i have a piece that's four foot by four foot i'm first going to think about the subject matter and the negative space within the painting so say say i have like 20 percent negative space say I have, it's a landscape i'm going to take that into consideration rather than something that spans the whole entire um composition right so i use price per square inch when I'm doing commissions because it's it's kind of hard to say but I always go over uh, if I did it by hourly <laughs> it just doesn't make sense to me it's uh, like I wouldn't be paying myself very much so like in a four by four I'll charge like anywhere from 250 to three dollars and fifty cents per square inch and the the hard part for artists is that I don't think we realize that there's a market out there for original art. For me, before I got into the art community, if I saw a painting that was $5,000, there's nothing to me in my, because I wasn't in the art community. I didn't know about originals. I didn't know about how much the artist put into this and the the quality of it. I would say there's no chance that I'd be purchasing that, but that wasn't for me. And if you have several paintings that are in the thousands and you're not selling them, it's probably because you're marketing, you're not marketing to the right people. And these aren't ultra rich people. I've like, it, it does not mean that it's just that you probably haven't put your work in where people who are buying original art would see it. Yeah. Cause I look at your work and you do amazing work, but when I look at Im- imperfect perfection, and how big is that piece? Um, it's like five by four, I would think. And you know, you're selling in for fifteen five, fifteen thousand five hundred. I'm thinking, wow, that's incredible. But that's a lot of hours, <laughs> and it's a beautiful piece, and it's large. And you're pretty confident you're going to sell that. Like that's, but there's a different market for that. That's not something you're going to market necessarily on Instagram? Um, for that, it's in gallery right now. And I'm not, I'm not going to it might be sold. Who knows? Okay. <laughs> but for something like that, when you do have these pieces that are, once you pass that 10,000 threshold, mm-hmm. your customers, they go down and down and down because I don't have enough money to buy that. I mean, <laughs> rarely do artists have enough money <laughs> to buy their own artwork. So what's been great about that painting and what I, when people hear the story and you get a little taste of it is that prints, they can take it home. 
on a Jikle or a print. And to me, it's the same thing. And I love the fact that when I did start um, making prints, that people were really drawn to one of my artworks and they could just take it home at a fraction of the cost, which is amazing. Yeah, because I'm looking at that same one that we were just talking about. A 16 by 20 print is $90. And now there's only five available, <laughs> but that's that's something that somebody could come into the market and say, yeah, I, I, that's, I want one of Marrow's works in my place and this is a way for them to get into it and you know i love your skulls like honestly i'm thinking about show art and i'm thinking it probably has to be a skull <laughs> like it's uh i love those pieces skulls are the best i mean the skulls they're just i absolutely love to dress so i'd probably do it too much <laughs> i think like the art imitating art is just a brilliant piece and uh um, yeah, I love the skulls. I love your work in the skulls. So I wanted to also talk to you about grants because this is something that I've not done. I know a lot of artists uh, don't do it and should, and some artists do do it. Can you talk about maybe what a grant is for those who don't know and what it enables you to do, and then maybe talk about the pain? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I can talk. I mean, how many segments on the pain? So, when I came into this space, a grant was not on my radar. I never heard about it. Didn't know what it was. I started to get more and more friends with that are artists, and this grant conversation started to come up. Still not quite sure. There was only a couple places that I actually look. So this month, or no, this is February, last month, January, I took one month out to apply for... 18 grants and they range from $500 all the way up to $250,000. Wow. Yeah. I couldn't even say that. It got stuck in my throat. <laughs> and basically you have federal, state, city, county foundations. And the most general type of grant is that they want you to produce a body of work and they'll, they'll pay for your studio rental, your personal needs, eating, entertainment, brushes, all the equipment you would need to produce this body of work. And this is an amazing way that people will donate to these foundations. The city will want to help inspire artists and they give you funds so you can actually create. And the special thing about this is that there are so many grants, so many calls, so many residencies that I have been on this and I've only scratched the surface of 30 days of looking at it. When I post about it, my, my troubles with grants and complaining on my stories, I get 20 people sending me different grants I've never even heard about. And I hate them for it. I'm like, dude, stop. I'm, I'm, I'm complaining, I'm literally complaining on my stories. I even made a TikTok to, <laughs> to procrastinate. So, what you would do is, um, I'll mention one right now, the Elizabeth Greenshields Foundation. Okay. So what I proposed is I have two solo shows coming up, one at Secret Gallery and one at Lapis Room. And I wanted a grant to cover some of my expenses so I can make artwork that was more personal that would be less commercial. So I, with the first, with the first gallery, I want to do something that 
only a New Mexican would have troubles with cultural identity being the fact that you know I'm brown but I can barely speak Spanish things like that we grow up with that are not universally commercial that I probably won't sell to prints I just want it to create something very unique to me in my hometown and at Lapis Room I just want time because I'm going to produce a little bit more bold more uh, symbolic images so Elizabeth Greenshield's foundation I saw that grant and I think it is for 10 or 15,000 and that would cover the time my studio rental the 15 canvases I'm going to be painting and it just gives artists a breath and it's like we believe in you ah go create not everything has to be so commercial that we're marketing it towards sales and that's how I'm looking at it I have no problem asking for help <laughs> like if you want to give me more time to paint and have that financial stability that my family is comfortable fantastic let's do it and I will not fault anyone for applying for as many grants as they possibly can well it's certainly a and I'll you know I think as an artist we always have to consider revenue streams I mean you've got revenue with your originals you've got revenue with your prints and this is once again, it's not just revenue, but as you said, like you latched on, you talked about the money, but you latched on to the fact that it's someone having confidence in you as an artist to say, we believe in you. We've selected you. Go do what you do because we love it. Right? Yeah. Um, same with residencies. Um, if you don't know about these, these foundations like um, BLM, the Bureau of Land Management here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Every national park has a residency. They are literally giving you a place to stay in the most beautiful places on earth to paint, to create music, to... Grants are not only for visual artists, they're performance artists, singers, anything creative you can find. Um, artist Archive, Call for Entry, Coffee and Creatives, that's a few places that you can just look and you will be overwhelmed to the fact that you're intimidated and you'll do it next year. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'll include links to all of these. So if you are listening now and you're running or you're driving, please check out the show notes. I'll include a mention at that at the, uh, at the end of the show where you can find it, but I'll include all these links so you can go and... <laughs> And be overwhelmed and have something to do in 2023. Is there a time of year that's bad? Like, is, is this like a January, February thing? Or do, is it spread out through the year? This is the first time I've gone all in on it. And I noticed my revenue is down in January. And this is the planning. This is when I usually do most of my larger works. Or stardom, rather. Mm -hmm. So I figured I'd take one month off tackle these get that macbook pro get all my files like be a true adult <laughs> professional <laughs> and what i'm learning is is that i am more of a kid than i ever knew i mean what i took you on a tour of albuquerque we started off in duranis then we went to east downtown now we're in knob hill because of computer issues <laughs> so yeah uh for January, I've heard that it's one of the better months because um, foundations have their budgets, what they're going to spend. City uh, arts uh, departments have their budget, and they want to start spending and investing in these artists. Yeah, we had uh, 
to your point there, Romero, we had a issue connecting and getting a good uh, audio connection here. So yeah, we had to explore a little bit there for, uh, for <laughs> people would not know that, but they do now. So I assume you're going to do grants next year. Is there anything you would do differently next year than what you did this year? A um, few things. One is saving it. Every proposal that I ever wrote, I'm going to save. I'm going to put these into a file and I'm going to have them at my disposal. The second thing is make sure that you have your letter of um, references contacts at the start of the year. So the big roadblock I hit last week is I thought I'm done. I didn't think of a letter of recommendation. And all of a sudden it stopped. And the way these grant foundations work is that they do not want you to edit. So they'll email the people directly. But I didn't have anyone in mind. <laughs> and I even put it on my stories. I'm like, I'm done. Like I can't put any more work into this. I had to get four references in three days. And of course, it's horrible. You're like, can you speak about how great I am? Like, please just, <laughs> that's the most humbling thing. You're like, especially like people you don't know that much, be like, do you know me that much to, to kind of lie for me? Uh, yeah, it's, that, was, that, was, that was probably the hardest part of it is being like, oh, I hate to bother you, but say how great I am, kind of lie a little bit and uh, make <laughs> me better in what I am. So I think that's helpful. I, I... I have seen residencies. I've seen them here in Canada as well. I've seen a lot of the ones, as you say, where it's a park and you can go and they've got, they want you to be in that park for a month and live there and just be amongst it and be creating as a visual artist, as a musician, how, whatever the case. So I think that's, those funds are available. I don't know if they go claimed every year. Maybe they don't, but um, I, I didn't really think about it until you started really talking about it. I've heard other artists talk about residencies. I, I know what a residency is. I think it's a bit more challenging for me at this point, but uh, the grants is appealing. And I think maybe more artists need to pursue that. Yeah, and also it gives you the confidence when you're talking about your work and you're putting together an artist statement, everything that means about that body of work. And you're like, yeah, it's a little bit of a boost when you put it into actual words. And it's just practice with anything. It, it, it lets you explain to a listener what your work would be. I'm still not there, but I'm getting better. But it's necessary uh, being a full-time artist. I've received one grant, I think, a couple of years ago. But, yeah. How many have you applied for? Can I ask you that? In, in this month? 20, oh, this month, 18. And we'll see if I waste an entire month. <laughs> well you'll have to loop back and people will have to follow you on instagram to see because i'm sure you're going to share uh how that went for you so and how long does it take to find out uh usually about a quarter so about three months okay and proposals are the same thing if you want to be into a gallery write a proposal if you want to have public art write a proposal once you get that first rejection that's it that's fine. Welcome in. Welcome on <laughs> right. Dallas Rejects. Because I knew uh, someone was talking to me, Frank Vlasquez, and he applied for a lot. And not you're not going to get every grant that you go out for. And you have to keep in mind that when you apply, say, to a foundation, look at who is during the selection process. 
Myself, I'm a representational oil painter. I'm not going to go and apply for a grant or proposal when all the members of the board have um, abstract portfolios. Mm -hmm. It just, they're not going to be socked to me. That's what I learned with my first grant. Everyone was pop surrealist to the 10th degree. And I thought I had a really good chance. And then I finally looked at all the jurors and they were all pop surrealist, all in their 50s and 60s. And what they selected re represented that. So know who you're applying to. And if you're a good fit, go on with confidence. False confidence. That works the best too. <laughs> Is there a minimum that you need to a level that you have to be at. Do you have to be in a gallery? Do you have to have been into a, in a show to apply to, for these grants? Worst case scenario is they say no. I don't sure. think you have to. This Second guessing your qualifications is such a waste of time. If you're an artist, call yourself an artist first. If you've ever picked up a pencil, call yourself an artist and apply to these things. Because there's a 100% chance that you're not going to get it if you don't apply for it. It doesn't matter if you're in galleries, if you are in MoMA. <laughs> People have different tastes, and there's a good chance that you're going to get one. Man, you just, uh, <laughs> you're going to have a bunch of people listening to this who are thinking, I'm going to try it. I'm going to do it. I, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. DM me on Instagram. I help whoever I can. My, uh, my thing is, if you want to learn how to to blend like I do, I'll spend an hour out of my day teaching you. I didn't have that. I'm a self-taught artist, so I'm like, if you get better five times faster than I did, fantastic. Like, I don't want anyone to go through and have the pain of mixing acrylic and oil paint <laughs> and asking yourself why it didn't work. You heard it. If you need help, <laughs> reach out to uh, to Romero. And uh, he'll, he'll, I mean, I, I commend you for, for doing that because it does take time and effort, but you're right. It's, we can help people navigate some of this where we have the capability to do so. And I appreciate you offering that out. That's great. Now I wanted to ask you about something I knew nothing about until you talked about it. And this is these um, retablos. I hope I say that right. Close enough. Retablos. This was really interesting because uh, you were talking about, you know, being in the workshop and, and, you know, as a painter, you're working on your next pieces and it's like, well, what are you doing then? <laughs> and maybe if you can just talk about what these are and they're just, they're beautiful. And I had no idea of this, this origin story, which I guess is specific to your, to, to your region in the U.S., but maybe you can just talk to about what they are and, and what you've done. Well, the retablos, as I knew them, I always see them in my tia's house, you know, and in my mom's house. Like, everyone had a specific devotional saint. New Mexico is primarily a Hispanic, Chicano, Hispano, and Catholic state. So we would have these um, Catholic images everywhere. And as a kid, you don't really think about it. And when I started painting, I was like, why... Like, they all seem to kind of look alike. And as I got into the history, it just opened my eyes. Like, these were made from natural pigments, which I don't do. I'm not going to call myself a Santero. I'm just kind of keeping in with the... And what is a Santero? A Santero is someone who would make a devotional object, usually tin, wood, uh, retablos, 
they're they're um they're amazing i mean the people who actually use the there's a certain type of uh conwood bark not bark um what's on the bottom of a tree mike Root. roots there you go <laughs> roots yeah so they would use that natural pigments from the rocks from some bugs like cochineal bugs and they are there is a cannon because when the trade from say like santa fe to mexico city they were taking devotional paintings to the churches. They, they were seeing these, these academically trained saint pictures. So New Mexicans started to do that, and they would just do it based off their own experience. So they came out looking um, a little bit different. There is definitely a stylistic interpretation because these people never had that academic-like structure. So that became canon. And that became an art form itself. It's kind of like if you would look at a Rousseau painting and say, that's how you paint it from here going on. So this is hundreds of years old. And I started doing it as a devotional practice. And I will do it in December. And it, it's a, a strong reset to painting representational. There's a canon, there's a lot of line work, and there is you have to incorporate specific symbology in order to pay tribute to what has been done before. So that's a little bit more structured than I'm used to, but it puts my mind in a state that's by the end, I'm ready. I'm ready to get back to painting and it's still producing and creating. So it's, it's, uh, it's a good practice. Next year, I'm going to do things a little bit differently, but. Now, are you still taking that idea where you're hiding symbology and, and, weaving messages are you still doing that in these pieces oh yeah um when people have loved one who pass usually i mean i'm not going to charge them at all like i just ask them when was their birth month what was their favorite thing to eat did they have a favorite dog and i'll include all these um symbolic images within the composition to make that per just a part of their personality so they can have that going forward and kind of remember their grandmother, remember their brother for that. So I do that throughout the year, just depending if someone asks me, like, it's just, I have to do it. (laughs) I don't know why I have to, but I have to do it. You know, we'll link to your site. Is is there, I'm looking at a few here. Is there one specifically that you really enjoyed when I look at uh, San Miguel or Santa Rita or San Francisco? There was one, I made 17 last or in december so it's hard to (laughs) yeah i don't know why i do this to myself five would be good but i have to do the 17. um the sacred hearts i'm not sure it's up there but i hadn't seen it done before and a little bit more license to to create which was kind of nice but i always do this i always share my favorite santeros on instagram of here in New Mexico, like Nick Otero, he's a master. And mine are like, I, people do enjoy them. They're a little bit different style, but I look at his, like my mind's just blown. They're, they're so amazing. They're so uh, spiritual. Like you rarely get that aspect looking at something. You just, it's just like a calming feeling when you see his. Hmm. Well, I think yours are beautiful. Like I've not, it, it's hard even to look at this and understand it comes from the same artist that does the other work. yeah i know it's kind of funny some people i only make these 20 days out of the year 
but they think that's all I do. And they'll come into my studio and be like, oh, you you do this too? I'm like, that's all I post. Like, what are you, how did you even see these in the first place? And they're like, oh, no, my primo saw it. And you gave me your number. I was like, okay, yeah, that's what's nice about, you know, not caring what people think is you can, everyone thinks that you have to be in a box and you have to do this. And on that same breath, you can very easily be <laughs> put into something. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's cute, but do do more of this. And I, I get that a lot. I think that's beautiful work. I wanted to ask you, uh, and we're going to get to homework here in a little bit, but I wanted to talk about something you alluded to, which is you know supporting people through Instagram who may have questions. So you do some teaching. How important is it for you to take what you've learned and share it with others to help other artists along? Because I hear this as an undertone in everything that you say when I hear you speak and like on Clubhouse, and we talked about that earlier with the other artists. How important is it now as you're getting older, as we're all getting older, that you need to pass on some of the information that you have, some of the, the drive, some of the, the passion? I think it it really does come back to me and my experience. When I see some people that are painting and they're getting into it at 21, I kind of wish I had that. I, I really w- I wish I had gone to school and actually actually learned some of the techniques and, you know, just things that you learn in school. So I think it's important not to waste this gift to me. And we only have so much time on this planet and I want people to embrace their artistic passion with everything that they have and to not waste a second. And if I can be part of that to help people realize that they need to do that, that's fine. But I really want to see people succeed and find the balance that I was able to find through art. Can I ask you... When I look at your work, I'm curious about what inspires you. Like, is there a place you go? Like, do you go on a hike? Do you, like, if you need that inspiration, that motivation, what what kind of refills your your well, your creative well? Um, The creative well, if I hit some, like, I've been trying to think of a series for these two shows that I'm doing. And I noticed that... I had a backlog of information in my brain that I wanted to paint. So I'll go through there. They didn't really seem to mesh well with each other. And I, I'm i having a panel and I had to find a poet. So I've been reading a lot of poetry lately. And I was like, why haven't I been doing this? I was like, it's art. It's beautiful. But it's not so much as emulating their words, but really taking those emotions that you feel when you read just like a really strong Chicana poet you get this this sense of um, purpose and like anger and you take all those emotions and they just become some visual representation Hmm. and that's what I've been doing lately is kind of reading a lot reading a lot more listening to poetry and kind of relying on other people's artistic endeavors to support my own creativity And I think in the past, I was looking more towards myself, saying that I have to be unique specifically with my own creations. And as I get older, I'm like, this is just all, we're all the same person. We all have this. We need to lean on each other more to really 
fill our chest with that kind of creativity that everyone emits. So within the past month, I have been doing that. And I can tell you, it's, it's, there's a fire in there now from actually just listening to poetry. And I've got so many ideas I'm putting down on canvas in the next coming month. I'm looking forward to that. I, uh, I would agree. I don't read enough poetry. Now I'm thinking maybe I have to do that again. Because that's, I, I agree, like, we have to understand that visual art is not living on its own, that it is a reflection of, of us and our experiences. And the written word's important. Seeing a good movie, uh, appreciating a good story, it's it's all part of it. But I'm, I'm glad you called that poetry because you, you don't hear a lot of people talk about that, and it is important. And I'm glad to hear that it's had an impact on you. I'm curious about what your first piece will be from this. Me too. so what kind of goals do you have for 2022 like art goals um i have a certain number of prints that i want to sell Mm -hmm. i here's what i want to do i want to take my business i just bought a commercial printer huge 44 inches it's massive i still haven't got it to my studio because it takes four people i got the macbook I started to invest in myself and this is this is not me this is all my wife saying you got to do this and i'm like mm-hmm. you've been right our entire relationship <laughs> i'm gonna trust you on this too so i'm investing in myself to make sure that i have a more stable financial outlook in 2023 so 2022 is going to be about just getting those email lists getting into different markets really just getting my artwork out there so people can say yes or no and I can support myself another year. I do want, I want a lot of things, but it's it's kind of like when you put that out there, this is, I'm gonna say this later on, but um, mm-hmm. I have two solo shows. I have a mural, big mural proposal that I'm going, two of them actually, and I just want time enough to spend with my family so I don't go crazy this year. Because it's, it's getting to the point where I mapped it out, I have four or five commissions right now, and it should take every second of 2022 Hmm. working 10 hours a day. With regard to social media, are you going to be leveraging this through the year, posting some kind of works in progress some teasers? Are you still going to be working in that space on Instagram? Yeah, I need to. Um, It's not a want, it's a need. I get so many people saying like, you got to make reels. They come to the studio and be like, why don't you show this? I'm like... I'm hesitant of it because I think inside I'm a little bit afraid of, one, technology, as you know. <laughs> but two, it's um, when, you, when you attach your face to your artwork, there's even more vulnerability. There, there's so much, there's only so much that you can bleed out, you know? <laughs> when you put a painting on the wall, that's a little piece of your heart, and then you have to stand in front of it, and then you have all your little... Everything that you think that's wrong with your body, that's there too. Then you have to use your words. So it's too much vulnerability for me right now, but it's going to change because in everything else in life, I'm like, you know, I don't give an F. So (laughs) I just have to take that mentality into my art practice. And that's been the hardest part is getting that vulnerability out there and also getting the business sense into my art practice. So much more difficult than actually painting. I appreciate that you've put all this time into it because we've been chatting back and forth for some time and to see you talk about or hear you talk about something 
and then to see you action it, it's serious. And I think that's, it's good to have those people around you, that network that feeds these ideas, that helps to solidify these ideas. And I think that for me, connecting with someone like you has been one of the most important things I've done in my life because it it gives my creative ability a network to rely on. And I think we need that bandwidth as artists. We need to have those people around us. So I appreciate you. I appreciate all the support you've given to me and to many other artists as well. And I wanted to, since you give out so much advice, I want to ask one more question, then we'll get to homework. What's the best advice you think you've ever received? Um, this kind of comes back to the network. My mom, I think this kind of saved me in a while too. She would always, she'd always say this thing and she'd always like, do not tell me who you are. Tell you, tell me who your friends are. And I didn't understand it for the longest time until I kind of got into that place where I felt I belonged, where I can have these connections that are perfectly representative of who I want to be. And they're the type of people that will lift me up. Like there's there's absolutely no <laughs> reservations about having them represent me. And that's made me think about my relationships a lot more since I started really thinking about what my mom had said. That's beautiful. I've not heard that before. Uh, that's beautiful. I'm going to keep that in my head. You don't mind if I do, right? <laughs> Mike, just write it down. Mike, put it in one of those boxes and just put Mike Henley. I'm, I'll sign off on that one. <laughs> That's awesome. So I always get to this point. I love the listener to be able to take something away and action something. And you know this is coming. What kind of homework would you give to the listener to be able to say, this is something you should try? What's on Romero's mind? This one's going to be tough because I have trouble with this and I need to have a refresher, but I want you to treat your art practice with respect. The respect that it would deserve. Like, you would not be playing the office at church. <laughs> you would not bring, um, you know, you would not bring so much crap into the middle of a forest to meditate. Like, you need to really focus and give the art the respect it deserves your entire soul, all of your attention, and all of your heart, and put it into your practice so that you can say, this is pure. This is pure creativity. And there's nothing wrong with listening to podcasts or music, but every now and then, you need to just be alone with your painting. You need to be alone with your drawing, your singing. And you need to be present as one with that creative endeavor. And maybe two, three times a year, you need to really ask yourself, am I giving the respect that my art deserves? And am I giving myself that respect as well? And that's, uh, I do this, I'd say four or five times a year, probably couldn't think of it now. Hmm. Second thing is, oh, go ahead. No, I... <laughs> I was going to say that's fantastic, but we have a second thing. That's even better. Go ahead. Everyone, if you're in a car, if you're on a co uh, uh, your commute, I need you for the next year, to the rest of your life. This is going to work. I do this all the time. You think one year in advance, and I want you to see where you're, what your goals are for one year. For instance, if you haven't had a solo show, I want you to say, I want a solo show. I want you to pick the gallery 
and I want you to say I'm going to sell three pieces. Then the second part of it is you're going to tell yourself how you're going to do that. So you tell yourself I'm going to make some calls, I'm going to send some emails, I'm going to make a meeting in order to see if I can get a solo show in galleries A, B, C, and D. The second is that you're going to actually, uh, you're, you're going to see how many hours it's going to take to get this painting. It's going, to, it's going to take this. It's going to take all this material. You're just going to have a means to get to the first part of your goals. And finally, the third, after, you, after you're done, when you're driving, I want you to do the emotional reaction when you accomplish these goals. So you're talking afterwards. Like I do, I'd be like, I just got out of my first solo show gallery. Feels good. I have a good two glasses of wine in me. My wife is there. My child's looking at me. It feels great. I feel validated in my efforts. And I think I am deserving of some praise. Just focus on the actual emotional feeling that you're going to have that. And I promise you, the more you say this, the more you're going to be blind to the fact that it's already come true. These things that you're stating, they're going to get more grand. They're going to get more just completely magnificent until um, it's just a great way of keeping focus. And it's everyone like if take do it four or five times a week. Don't look at Instagram when you're on your commute. Tell this to yourself. Speak it out loud. I love that. I think that, uh, you know, you had me through all of that. And then the last point about picturing yourself talking to your partner about, I did it. And we're going to celebrate. And I think that's fantastic. That visualization is so important. I mean, I'm not a big fan of Jeff Bezos, but I remember he had said at one point that when you're creating a product, write the news release, write, write the story, write the ending. And I really love the fact that you're writing the ending by visualizing it because that's that's so important is is to capture those feelings at the end and see if they can pull you forward. And uh, I, I love that. And, and obviously, the idea of um, of treating your art practice as something sacred, something that requires that respect and that attention, I think is 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 also critical. And you know, and being able to share that with your kids, your partner, whomever, so that everybody understands how important it is. And to, as you say, not have those distractions around, right? Like you can have music and, and so on and so forth. But I agree, like there are times when I have nothing going on. It's not clubhouse. It's not music. It's just silence. And I'm drawing or painting. And it is a magical experience. And you forget it. Like you forget that how important that was. <laughs> you may do weeks of it. You don't come back to it. And I just, great. That's great homework. Love that. So I wanted to ask you, Romero, where can people find you? We talked about Instagram, and I'll include a link to all of these in the show notes. But you're on Instagram. You have a website? Yeah, website, ericromeroarts.com. Twitter, Eric Romero. <laughs> Everything is Eric Romero Arts. Uh, TikTok. Um, basically, any social media platform I've signed up at one time or another. But if you want to see more what uh, I'm doing, go to Instagram. If you want to see what's for sale, go to my website. That's awesome. I, I'd recommend those two. Okay. Okay. I'll include links to all of them because maybe we all need to spend more time on TikTok, but uh, <laughs> we'll point people to Instagram. And uh, what do you think? Are you doing more TikTok this year? Um, 
Oh, do you know what? As my homework, I'm going to visualize myself actually being on TikTok. <laughs> Just create, you know, content creator, making a fool of myself. Let's get it out there. <laughs> I'll have my wife tape them so it'll be true. You know, candid moments dancing to like ACDC in the shower or something. Right. I've got to, uh, I'm going to commit to doing something foolish on TikTok as well this year. So, yeah. yeah we'll, we'll have a duet. There. We'll, we'll, we'll do, do both that. together, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not opposed to that. So, Romero, I wanted to thank you so much. Uh, I've been wanting to talk to you for the longest time, and uh, I wanted to be just right, and we found that spot, and it took us some technical hurdles to, to jump over, but I think that's par for the course and made this conversation much much sweeter to be able to sit down and, and just chat with you and pick your brain and understand your perspective and it's it's this has been wonderful i've i've spoken with you so much on clubhouse but i felt like this has been the best conversation of all and i really appreciate your time and being honest and upfront and uh, sharing all your stories I, I really appreciate it thanks mike yeah we always we have the utmost respect for you and really look up to you and we even so much that i say i hate you a lot because you represent everything that I should be like. You're 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 a great role model in the arts and everything else that you do. And I'd like to say thank you though. Thank you, appreciate that. I, I hate you well, still a little bit, you know. <laughs> That's okay. So thanks again, and uh, we will uh, we'll connect again as we always do on Clubhouse. And um, I'm hopeful that people will will check out the show notes, see where they can find you. And uh, once again, thank you so much. I know this has been longer than planned, and I do appreciate your time, and I uh, hope you take care of yourself. Hope you have a great 2022. Likewise. Thank you so much. All right. We'll chat with you soon. Show notes, including links to everything Romero and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 71. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, share, and review wherever you listen to podcasts, which now includes Spotify. This will help surface the podcast for others to enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod.